0: Hello, happy Lunar Year of the Tiger and welcome along to the first ever episode of Wildcats Podcast, a brand new podcast from Wildcats Conservation Alliance with me, Amy Van Gelder. Join me each month as I find out about the threats to global tigers and more importantly, how conservationists are fighting back. Each episode, we'll be exploring a different key issue and meeting with experts from around the world working to save wild tigers and their habitats. To kick the series off, this month we're jumping straight in with the topic of diseases. While global attention is currently focused on COVID-19, a disease that has jumped from animals to humans, it's important to remember that diseases that breach the species barrier also pass from people and their domestic animals to wildlife populations. And this poses a serious threat to endangered species, like tigers who are already teetering on the brink of extinction. In this episode, I'm going to be joined by the Deputy Country Director from the Wildlife Conservation Society's Indonesia Programme, Dr. Matthew Linke, Freeland Foundation's Surviving Together Programme Director, Tim Redford, and Wildlife Veterinarian and Epidemiologist, Dr. Martin Gilbert from Cornell University. We discussed the top three infectious diseases which are having an impact on tigers, including indirect threats from African swine fever and lumpy skin disease, to the more direct impacts of canine distemper virus. One undeniable common theme you will notice between all three diseases is that the human disruption of natural systems is intensifying unnatural interactions between species and creating emerging infectious disease transmission pathways. But not only are we engaging in our natural environment in a more exploitative way, but we're also traversing it differently. The movement of people, animals, and animal products has increased dramatically through international travel and trade, which has effectively meant that diseases benefit from more freedom of movement than most of the human population. I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Matthew Linke, the Indonesia Deputy Country Director for WCS and the Asia Coordinator for the IUCN-SSC Wild Pig Specialist Group. He has recently led a study that investigated the spread and impact of African swine fever and has since been working on a joint position statement that outlines a collaborative approach to prevent the further spread of the disease and its cascading effects, such as through the loss of key tiger prey species in wild boar. To kick things off, Matt took us back to basics and gave me a bit of history about African swine fever.
1: I mean, African swine fever, it's been around for centuries, so in southern eastern Africa. And it's endemic there within the common warthog. And it goes through these cycles with these soft-bodied ticks that live in their burrows. And they sort of keep reinfecting the warthogs, but they show no signs of clinical disease. Um, but then you do get these spillovers to domestic pigs. And then when it gets to domestic pigs, which is Susgrova, so the same species of the wild boar, it's, it's 100% fatality. And that's the real concern. And so from uh, Africa to Europe, there's been these three waves. So one in the 1950s to Portugal. I think that came on uh, contaminated plain food that ended up as pig food. Yeah. And then spread to the, the domestic pigs there, so Suscrofa. Uh, then it was, I think, in the 1967. The next one came again to Portugal, again on a plane. That one then jumped across to Brazil and the Caribbean, so it spread quite quickly there. And I think it was only in the 1990s it managed to eradicate it. A really strict control measures, so biosecurity, carcass disposal, uh, keeping it away from wild boar, things like that. Uh, and so you can see the the, the difficulties there once it's out. That was genotype one. Then you get genotype two in 2007, and that's the more virulent one. And that came across in a ship, uh, again, from Southern Africa to Georgia. Uh, then it spread, and that was in uh, uh, food, waste food, uh, that was contaminated with African swine fever, ended up in pig feed, which in many countries is illegal. Uh, and then it spread to Russia, to the Ukraine, and really for a decade or so just been cycling. Within the wild boar population, less than the domestic pig population. Uh, and, and again, you get, because it's density dependent, uh, you get the, the buildup of wild boar to a high density, and then the fever, the virus can spread rapidly through that, knocks a lot of them out, uh, then dies down because there's fewer wild boar to affect, they're not spreading it. Uh, and it spreads just really, really easily. So secretions, excretions, so feces, urine, saliva, blood, uh, can stay in a carcass for a couple of months. Uh, I think the record is in cured ham over a year. A couple of decades later, so we're now going to late 2019, It spread to China. We're not quite sure how. From there, over three years, it's just spread all the way through down to Southeast Asia, down to Indonesia. So. Uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos. Um, it, it, made, it made it across from mainland China to Taiwan in a cooked pork wonton. And you think, look, it, if it can spread like that, really, we're, we're really going to struggle to contain it uh, once it starts to get into countries. And so I think as of today, it's in something like 51 countries around the world. Uh, mm-hmm. It's had a major impact on the domestic pork industry, you know, China has killed a cold something, or has the pigs have died? Some like a hundred million pigs. Um, it's cost their economy uh, over a hundred billion dollars. That's almost one percent of their GDP. So, the, yeah. uh, one country, and so the economic impacts can be really, really acute. You know, and then obviously we then get to the impacts on the the wild species and those cascading effects.
0: What impact could the death of these wild pigs have on the ecosystem? Because obviously they're seen often as like ecosystem engineers. And so you've got that kind of initial direct impact on less pigs will mean the wild spaces will end up looking different.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, we, we have many concerns over you know, the, the decline of pigs triggering the uh, cascade of impacts So um, on the, uh, endangered carnivores, where they form on one of the key prey bases on plant communities, and then also on the lives of millions of people who hunt or uh, consume pork for their protein source. And so, mm-hmm. you know, start starting with um, the plant communities. Uh, p- pigs are seed dispersers, and they're also seed predators as well. So, you know, the effects could work uh, two ways. They may also spread uh, invasive uh, species seeds as well, but. We 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 don't quite know what the impact of that would be. When it comes to the the the, the impacts on carnivores, well, I mean t- t- tigers, the tiger subspecies they they have different prey bases across Asia and Russian Far East. I think when you go to somewhere like India, uh, there's a huge variety of mm. prey items at high densities. So there's large amounts of biomass. So wild boar wouldn't necessarily be the principal prey, but mm-hmm. when you look at the animal tiger, and you look at the Sumatran tiger, wild boar is the number one prey species for those subspecies. And really my main concern, or my concerns with both of those subspecies, but Sumatran tigers, they really don't have a fallback option, They're deer, which is the other large prey item, but they're at very, very low densities because this is humid evergreen rainforest. And so there's not much primary productivity, so vegetation. For these prey items to eat. So they occur at naturally low densities. So to lose a wild boar is a really real concern in Sumatra.
0: Yeah, there's so many interconnecting threats, I think, that makes it a really difficult landscape to manage. I was also thinking, I guess, linking to another threat of human wildlife conflict. If there's less prey species, then that will probably close the gaps between tigers and, and humans as they go into human habitats and perhaps predate upon domestic animals. Is that something that is a risk that we're seeing with this, um, especially in, like you saying in Sumatra and in the Russian Far East?
1: Yeah. So we we haven't seen yet an increase in human-tiger conflict that we could then also link to African swine fever outbreaks that's declined the population of wild boar and the tiger's key prey. However, you can see that logical connection there, and it's definitely something that we need to anticipate and be concerned about. And so, you know, these tigers, they don't have enough food inside the forest. Well, it's going to start to push them out to the forest edge where you may have buffaloes or you may have goats. Um, and then you're going to come into conflict with people. Yeah. I guess for me, I, I, it just emphasises another point in terms of, you know, over time, over the decades, we've been seeing this increase in emerging infectious diseases, uh, particularly zoonotic diseases, and particularly those that have got uh, a wildlife species as, as a reservoir. And, you know, where, where they you get these outbreaks of emerging infectious diseases is where we start to, humans and livestock come into really close contact with wildlife because we're clearing the forest frontiers we're fragmenting forests we're weakening the immunity uh, of the forest of the livestock and of the people and then you get these outbreaks and they're just a whole combination of threats and interactions going on there and so you could see that the human tiger conflict being part of that as well and so i guess our response and something that we're looking at is okay well let's look at good Livestock husbandry practices. Let's think about petting those goats in at night in tiger proof enclosures. It's something we've been doing a lot with the Indonesian government uh, across Sumatra, and that's worked a really good effect. But it's not just that you get there's education, there's awareness that's built into that, and there's just sort of talking through what some of these issues are. There's also setting up really a quite sort of rudimentary early warning system where those community partners would start reporting to you if they see. Um, pig die-offs or other signs like tigers coming out of the forest or maybe even seeing the conditions of the tigers as they're looking weak and emaciated or something so um, you know that, that's got to be part of the response that, that we have there uh, in how we're going to react to this.
0: Is there anything else being done to control the threat of African swine fever outbreaks?
1: The, I mean mainly with the pork industry so just to control the spread of the disease so uh, culling Biosecurity, so they have really strict measures there. Uh, when when it comes, and it does work, so in Europe, they've definitely managed to contain the spread. Um, hasn't worked so when in other countries where they don't have those strict measures in place. Mm. I guess when it when it comes to the wild war, though, yeah, you know, well, what 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 do we need to do? So, first of all, we need to know where it's occurring. Uh, we need to have a common understanding that it is a problem and then its prevalence as well. So uh, having the surveillance set up, uh, get, getting getting local reports. You know, we've been using a lot of media reports in Indonesia just to track the spread. Yeah. And that's been really effective. But when you do get that, you do identify uh, these pig die-offs, and even if it's a dead pig, taking a sample, uh, you we need, to, we need to dispose the carcass. So ideally, you would incinerate it or bury it in a, a body bag deep underground so it couldn't be mm-hmm. dug up by scavengers. Uh, And again, in in an affected carcass, the virus can last for two months, perhaps even longer. So we've got to stop that from reinfecting other pigs. uh, So uh, the correct disposal is a really key part. I I guess something that we then need to think about. So there's no vaccine. Uh, We've got to get a vaccine. In in, in the US, I think there's been three successful trials with different vaccines. Uh, The Chinese government's working on one. Um, I mean, I do have hope. If you look at coronavirus, I mean, how quickly we suddenly develop this vaccine with everyone working together and just the sharp minds really thinking about how to mm. tackle it. We are seeing this happening now with African swine fever. I mean, just because of the economic impacts it's having, yeah. uh, it, it, it's definitely a cost-effective measure. So is it inconceivable in the future that, that we just think about restocking some of these tiger landscapes? You know, we had vaccinated pigs. I mean, they're a crop test, so I don't think there's going to be much support for doing that. Yeah. But just the real concern is what, what are the tigers going to be eating in a lot of these areas? And so, you know, do, do we wait for this density dependent virus to, you know, really devastate a, a population of wild boar? It drops to a low level. Um, you then have many individuals that aren't infected. They begin to begin to recover. And that's how you then to naturally restock or recover. Your tiger prey base but that's going to take time and then you think well what are the tigers going to eat in the meantime and so you know if we start to then lose you've got tigers that aren't eating enough they're then forced to the edge of the forest they're coming to conflict with people you know they may get caught accidentally in a pig snare or something like Mm. that some other form of trouble you know we don't we don't have large populations of tigers that could really withstand these offtakes in many of these areas in Southeast Asia and the Russian Far East. And so, uh, you know, I think we do need to start thinking through all options, even if they initially sound a bit silly. Uh, mm. you know, let's give them some thought and critique them and then see, well, does it really sound as silly as we thought it was at the end? And so, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's what we're thinking about as well. But I think we've just got to control the infection right now. I mean, I think that's something that everyone can agree on.
0: Uh, you mentioned about coronavirus, and do you think that since that ha- that's happened, um, diseases have been taken a little bit more seriously within well zoonotic diseases within just animal populations, even if they aren't directly impacting uh, human health. There's definitely more attention,
1: isn't there, to this? I I still don't feel that African swine fever. I mean, have have we seen many articles in the BBC mm-hmm. or the Guardian? There's been a couple for sure, but. Uh, when you think about the impact it's had and how you if you could measure it in you know about 1% of Chinese GDP in a year, I mean that's huge, but yeah. got barely any coverage. Um, so I I think again, I mean, you know, coronavirus, rightly so, the impact it's had on the world uh has had all of the attention. Uh, and maybe perhaps that's why African swine fever and other emerging infectious diseases have less attention. But I guess you know going back looking at some of these other emerging infectious diseases, SARS, stars, the estimated cost was $40 billion. I mean, they did get a lot of attention, but not huge amounts. We didn't really yeah. learn the lessons from that in terms of closing those, those pathways for wild meat consumption in, in wet markets and things like that, where you get these outbreaks and spillovers. Um, so no, I think I think it's definitely it's a tough one as well, because. I know, maybe it's because it's pigs, a uh, bit of a branding image. You know, we talk mm. about warty pigs or bearded pigs. <laughs> it doesn't quite arouse the same passions as a, as a tiger. It's not,
0: not as sexy indigenous. as, yeah, conserving a tiger. is
1: it? <laughs> I never thought, having worked in tiger conservation for 20 years, I never thought I would be concerned about the wild boar looking <laughs> out of our landscapes. You know, on yeah. the island, it's the Red List, it's least concerned uh, it's one of the most widespread mammal species on Earth. Uh, they they very fecund. They breed really well. They have lots of piglets. They have multiple litters in a year. Uh, they're an omnivore. So, you know, the fact that now we're really concerned about that, you know, in many ways, it's just sort of a, a broader issue, isn't it? That, you know, how do we get here that all of a sudden we're, we're worried about wild boar? And, you know, what, <laughs> what, what, what have we done to that? Uh, to the planet we're
0: living in. Thank you so much to Matt there for taking the time to introduce us to a very real threat that probably not many of us were aware of before. Our next guest is someone who, for the last 22 years, has been living and working in Thailand contending with a cocktail of threats to tigers. From the obvious pressures like poaching and land conversion, to the less obvious like emerging diseases. Tim Redford is Freeland Foundation's Surviving Together Programme Director, which is an integrated conservation development project based in Thailand involving park protection, community outreach, wildlife monitoring, and human-wildlife conflict resolution. Tim will be giving us an overview of lumpy skin disease, how it's currently impacting the landscapes he's working in, and what is being done to combat the spread.
2: So our greatest concern at um this time is, is called monkey skin disease. And this disease affects cattle, and it's been recorded um, first, I think it first occurred in South Africa many, many years ago, probably even 100 years ago. And it's been sporadically occurring all over Africa, going into Europe and across the Middle East and into Southeast Asia, most recently just over the last five years or so. And it occurred first here in Thailand, in about uh, 2020, it affects cattle of all sorts. And it's been found in domestic cattle. And I think that's probably how it's transmitted around, you know, that as people buy and sell cattle, that um, it gets moved from one country to another. And there's a terrific movement of cattle across Southeast Asia. It, it's just a nasty disease that spread very, very easily. Yeah, the vectors for lumpy skin are, Uh, biting flies, mosquitoes, and ticks, all blood-sucking animals. And they're quite common in the uh, tropical forests in Thailand and Southeast Asia. So as the farmers illegally graze their cattle inside the parks, of course, they get bitten by all these parasites. And it spreads very easily from one cow to another cow. It can go through, you know, directly from the pustules, or it can be from blood or saliva or other body fluids. And because quite often you see an intermingling of domestic and wild cattle, easily goes from one to the other. Um, so these farmers, when they're um, grazing their cattle in the parks, are not just causing the ecological disturbance from the presence of cattle, they're causing this you know, um, pandemic potential problem as well. The farmers in rural areas very rarely vaccinate their cattle So things like lumpy skin could easily be vaccinated against, but there's a lack of awareness and also a lack of finances to uh, spend on such expensive vaccines. And since this first occurred in Thailand um, about a year and a half, two years ago, it's moved really rapidly across the whole country. You know, within a couple of months, it went from one to being in all four corners of the country. And it's been recorded in... Uh, the south in Quibri National Park, where it's affected Gower, in Kauai National Park in the east, with Gower again, um, in the north in um, domestic cattle, and in the west in Gower in Ka King World Heritage Site, which is the main um, breeding source site for tigers in Thailand. And although it's not that serious for the for, uh, Infected cattle with less than 10% mortality, it does um, affect an awful lot more than that in the way that it, it depresses them for several months and they become easy prey for all sorts of um, animals, you know, both for the sort of natural predators, you know, like tigers, leopards, wild dogs, and such like. By wild dogs, I mean Asiatic wild dogs. But there's also they become prey for feral dogs as well, which are a serious problem and a threat again in the parks as they also carry diseases like canine distemper virus, which crosses over into all other types of carnivores. So uh, lumpy skin is highly concerning um, because it will depress the prey base. You know, as it jumps from the domestic cattle to the wild cattle, we're going to see them de- um you know, the wild cattle decrease, and that will remove the prey, especially for Gower and Banting, which are quite important for for tigers and other large carnivores.
0: So you've spoken about how the disease depresses wild cattle, making them easier to hunt, and so driving down population numbers of tiger prey. But do you anticipate that by generating hungry tigers, a secondary threat of this disease could be an increase in human-wildlife conflict? I imagine as tigers get hungrier, they're more likely to predate upon domestic cattle.
2: Certainly, you know, it, it is highly concerning when cattle are, take, are taken by uh, by large carnivores such as tigers because you get that retribution. And that was the excuse that a recent tiger poaching event used here in Thailand just a couple of weeks ago, Um Where in reality, it probably wasn't that. Looking at the poachers, they were sort of very well organised and looked like quite well experienced. And it wasn't probably the first time they'd done it either. So I think for most of these cases, one, the people know they're grazing illegally in the parks. And two, it's not going to affect you know, the local villagers. if these are moved away, because they're not the owners of the cattle generally, they are just the grazers of the cattle. Um, but in some instances, for sure, you know, local um, indigenous people will have one or two cows and they're the ones that we've got to be looking at because they'll be greatest impacted by this. And there's things that you can do such as having um, compounds or sort of, you know, enclosures which are tiger proofed that the cattle can um, be fed grass or, you know, other foodstuffs by the owners and they're not out free roaming. Now that's an ideal situation for us because as these free-roaming cattle go through the forest, they cause incredible ecological damage. They make a lot of noise, they destroy all of the, um, the, the plants that are growing I think some people misunderstand. They think, ah, if the cattle are in the area, it will provide an extra foodstuff for the tigers. But in reality, you know, they've all got sort of big bells around their neck, and they go in big herds and make a lot of noise. That's not really attractive for a tiger on its own to try and take out, you know, one cow. So the, there's no benefits I see in having them there. Only, you know, a lot of challenges and problems that they leave behind when they are there. I, I yeah, I mean. You know protected areas should be protected areas and not just from poaching but from other illegal activities like illegal cattle grazing as well.
0: Do you think then that um, lumpy skin disease could potentially benefit um, the some of the carnivores in the protected areas you work in if action is taken to remove cattle from the parks, to avoid the spread of it into, um, into the wild species?
2: Yeah, I think we can definitely use this to our advantage. And the fact that it's has been very openly observed jumping into the wild cattle, some of which are, are very much endangered, such as the Banteng, and have actually had you know a, a reintroduction plan to put them back into the forest again. And these animals have been affected It really is a good reason for us to work with the Department of National Parks and try to find ways to move the cattle out. Um, The people know they are breaking the law, but it's just, you know, they're trying to get away with it for as long as they can. And this gives the perfect opportunity for the cattle to be removed from the parks. Um, It's not going to be easy, um, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of you know complaints and everything, but They know they are wrong and they know that, you know, they they can be prosecuted for doing this. Um, And so I think, you know, rather than us sort of come to a conflict level where we say you have to remove them now, we come to some kind of agreement on a slow phase out so that, you know, the people who really need to have their cattle, you know, they've got one or two that they're keeping at their house. Maybe they are allowed to keep one or two as long as they're, you know, enclosed and not free roaming. And the large sort of commercial grazers who have got, you know, thousands of cows, they are the ones who move them somewhere else where they're not going to be damaging the environment or,
0: um, you know, breaking the law. Um, Is any work being done currently to, to kind of action this?
2: The challenge of illegal cattle grazing in Thai protected areas is huge. I mean, it's across almost the entire country. And so... It's a really big job and I've I've been discussing this with a number of NGOs and we feel that if we can, rather than work on an individual site level, we would try to get some national policy introduced where, you know, the parks work with the cattle owners to phase them out. And, um, you know, this is going to be a huge job and right now, you know, the protected areas in Thailand are struggling a little bit for finance because the government's um, resources and budgets have been reallocated to COVID mitigation. And so there's not a lot of spare money around at the moment. And this is this has affected our work. We first started in one park in Thailand, monitoring and counting the cattle. Who did they belong to? How did we contact the owners and such like? And We just started and then two years ago, COVID came along. So everything's suspended right now. And... You know, given the restrictions in having large meetings, which are required if all stakeholders are to be contacted, then it's going to be a bit of a challenge to reinstate these until, you know, things get back to normal again. Hopefully soon, Um, you know, because every day, you know, there's more and more problems from these cattle, you know, the ecological damage and also the disease risk from lumpy skin and other diseases as well.
0: A huge thank you to Tim who took the time out of his busy schedule in Thailand to share his knowledge and experience with us. So far, we've focused on some of the indirect disease risks to global tiger populations through a loss in their prey base, but are there any diseases which tigers themselves can contract? I chatted to wildlife veterinarian and epidemiologist Dr. Martin Gilbert, who has worked for decades on understanding how disease affects populations of tigers and other threatened carnivores. Currently a senior research associate and professor at Cornell University, Martin has published his research on the exposure and impact of canine distemper virus on Amur tigers in the Russian Far East and more recently, wild Sumatran tigers in Indonesia. Martin began by explaining a bit more about canine distemper virus.
3: I mean, canine distemper virus is a, is a pathogen that um, was well, no, no longer really familiar to a lot of us in, in uh, Western countries where. Um, dog vaccination is practiced regularly um, but is, is still very common in a lot of the world where you know veterinary care is is not uh, is not accessible to most people for their dogs it's a it's a, a, a virus obviously it's a um, an rna virus actually very closely related to measles so in some ways it's it's basically dog measles um, or really carnivore measles because that's the other aspect of it, although it, in its name the the, the um, it's a bit of a misnomer, canine distemper. Although we we think of it as a as dog disease, it's actually um, very widespread through the carnivore um, uh, the, the carnivore family, the carnivore order rather, that uh, most almost all species are susceptible to. I was first picked up in. Uh, in big cats in captivity in North America, going back to the late 1980s. It was a, uh, there were a number of outbreaks in rescue centers and in, in um, captive collections of uh, tigers, lions, and, uh, and other species of big cats. Um, it wasn't picked up in the wild until the early 1990s. The first, first outbreaks were recorded in, in East Africa, in, um, uh, in Tanzania, and also, Later in um, in Kenya, in uh, the lion populations there, um, those early outbreaks were actually quite spectacular. So, uh, lions, being a, a social species, um, are much more exposed to transmission from um, you know from, from animal to animal, and so it spread spread really widely through the Serengeti in the early nineteen nineties. And during that, that outbreak, around, of a population of about 3,000 lions, about 1,000 lions disappeared at that time. It was, was really quite severe.
0: With tigers, you were saying how, like with lions, the way they behave had impacted how quickly it spread. And is this something that we can anticipate within the tiger subspecies?
3: The initial thoughts were because tigers in, uh, are, are very unlike um, lines, they're not social species, there's very little opportunity for transmission from from individual to individual. And so we thought that there, um you know, the, the, the likelihood of spread through the population was, was very low. Um, that, that has, um, has, has not not uh, shown to be true in that in the sort of t- 2010, we uh, we saw a number of cases and cases over a very wide, uh, a very wide area. Um, so there, there certainly is some opportunity for transmission from tiger to tiger. We do think that that is happening, but other populations um, in um, the sort of more tropical parts of the tiger range, obviously they're they're much they live at much higher densities in places like India than they do in the Russian Far East. Um, so there may be more um, connectivity between individuals, um, but even still, I think we would we would. Um, be anticipating that certainly mothers to cubs, maybe mothers to their, um, to, to their, their breeding males in the overlapping territories. But other than that, um, chains of transmission are probably relatively limited.
0: So reservoir species that maintain CDB um, are dogs, obviously, because it's canine distemper, but I guess, is it a multi-host pathogen? Can other wild species be passing it on to tigers?
3: certainly i mean that this is this is really the secret of distemper's success is it has a very wide host range um although we are most familiar um with with transmission in domestic dogs the fact that other wild wild carnivores are susceptible really the virus doesn't discriminate it's able to it could move from a Uh, a dog to a wild carnivore or a wild carnivore to a dog if there's opportunity for it to do so. Um, And so really where where the reservoir and the identity of the reservoir, the species that make up the reservoir of distemper, it's really a function of the environment. If it's an area where there's large numbers of um, susceptible wild carnivores that are living in circumstances where um, the opportunity for contact is is there, then they would, um, uh, there'd be a good, a good chance that they would take the, um, uh, they would, they would form the reservoir. Alternatively, if it's an area where domestic dogs are freely able to move around, um, and are, um, uh, and are, are under unvaccinated, then domestic dogs could play a major role or both, you know, if there's opportunity for transmission between the two, then, uh, and uh, the virus can readily move between those different, um, different groups.
0: So how does canine distemper virus actually affect tigers, and how deadly is it for the species?
3: Well, that's, that's a key question. It's a key question when it comes to us um, being able to predict how much of a, an issue distemper is to, to a population. And The short answer is we don't have very good information on that. A lot of the captive outbreaks have... Uh, have focused on the individuals that are clinically infected and, and, and die. Um, what we tend to have less information about is the, the number a uh, number of animals that were, were exposed to the infection because not, not every case um, will produce clinical signs, but we're, we're probably looking at a, um, a, a case fatality rate for, for infected individuals of maybe, um, 30%, 40%, 50%, something like that. Mm. It will vary with strain. Um, it certainly does with domestic dogs. So we, we could have certain strains that are um, more vigorous than others and cause, cause higher levels of mortality than others and other strains that are um, perhaps, perhaps less of a, a clinical issue.
0: So as we've seen with COVID, vaccinations can be a controversial topic and it seems vaccinating against C D V is no different. Why is this and what can be vaccinated? Would it be the domestic dogs or the tigers themselves?
3: With Cun and Distemper, we, um, we have good vaccines for domestic dogs that we've used for um, decades. And mm-hmm. they are generally very safe vaccines and very effective vaccines. The immunity that is is produced in domestic dogs from a a course of vaccination tends to be very long lasting and and very protective. When it comes to free ranging animals, um, we're really, vaccination of free ranging animals, particularly for um, conservation purposes is really in its infancy is something that has been practiced in a few places um, and is, is uh, effectively um, practiced in a, in a few places, particularly for, for rabies. Um, but for canine distemper virus, um, we, we really have just proposed this as, a, um, as, as the, the logical next course of action in places where wild carnivores are the main source of infection. So if domestic dogs were the, the, the main reservoir, then we would really be looking at vaccinating domestic dogs. That would be the, the, the most um, straightforward and cost-effective method of, of controlling infection in, in, uh, or exposure in tigers. Um, but where wild carnivores are, trans, are, are maintaining the virus and acting as the source of infection for tigers, um, the the only really recourse would be to, to vaccinate the tigers themselves. It would be a very demanding thing to do to vaccinate a population of tigers, but it's important to remember that what, what we would be proposing would not be, would not be looking to do like we would be with with COVID, getting very high rates of coverage in a population, so 80, 90%, as if if in an ideal situation with, with COVID would be what we'd be looking for. With some of these um, conservation applications, we'd we'd be looking at at really just vaccinating a very small proportion of the population. So enough that if there were an outbreak in the future, we'd retain a sort of a small nucleus of of, of immune individuals that would then be able to repopulate. So we wouldn't be looking at protecting the whole population We're not looking at eradicating the disease from the whole population because, of course, it's coming from an outside source, so a reservoir source. Um, It it would really be um, preparation for emergencies with with outbreaks in the future that we would not want, uh, particularly small populations that would be vulnerable to to outbreaks to decline to extinction. If a population that is sort of large, Healthy the way that tigers used to be, um, canine distemper is is really not likely to be an issue. The ones that we're really concerned about are small populations, particularly ones that might be uh, of high priority, perhaps a source source populations for um, uh, for, for, for repopulating other areas. Um, these are the ones that would be. Um, of, of greatest vulnerability to, to uh, an outbreak. And those would be the ones that would be focused on vaccination for.
0: And with that, do you think that, based on the fact that there are some of these really small um, populations of the subspecies like the Sumatran tiger, um, do you think that CDV could be a potential threat for extinction? It could just push those subspecies over the edge into extinction?
3: Well, I guess... Taking a step back from that at the moment, we really don't have a good picture of the status of canine distemper virus outside of Russia. Mm. Um, Other other populations, there have been reports of individual cases, Um, Malaysia particularly, uh, with the Malayan tigers um, in Peninsular Malaysia. There've been a number of cases reported at least in in the press there. Um, There have been um, some anecdotal reports also in India, but we really have no um, good sense of the, the extent of exposure in these populations. And there's no reason to think that the ecology of the virus, the epidemiology of the virus, would be the same as it is in Russia. So that's that's the big question right now. How much of a risk is distempered to tigers in Sumatra or tigers in Indochina or tigers in in the Indian subcontinent? That does create some challenges, um, particularly as a lot of these countries are not equipped with the, the protocols for, for testing tigers for exposure to, the, to infection. So in doing so, we'd be looking to measure antibodies in um, free ranging tigers um, to, to indicate prior exposure to infection. In the Russian Far East, um, roughly one in three tigers has a, um, a measurable um, concentration of antibodies in their blood. What that looks like in other populations, we just don't know yet. And that's something that we're, we're working on. Um, the biggest challenge is firstly, that we don't have the, the, the testing protocols in country. Secondly, a lot of these countries actually restrict the export of samples to get them to international laboratories because of, um, well, primarily e- either cites regulations or their own national um, uh, regulations on the, the movement of of animal and wildlife samples and wildlife material. Um, and so the really the obvious. the only course of action at that point is for us to to look at rather than bringing the sample to the lab um, to bring the lab to the sample and set up the facilities in country to test test those samples um i mean that's that's both more effective now but it's also more sustainable in the future because it it allows that ongoing testing in russia we've seen a change in the exposure of tigers during the 1990s Um, Tigers do not appear to have been exposed to the virus. We've never detected or we haven't detected any exposure prior to the year 2000. So and since then, with one in three tigers now being being exposed, we've seen a change over time. So I think there's a case for in each of these tiger range countries, these facilities to be set up so that we can um, we can monitor these populations in the long term. So sampling tigers whenever they're handled for um, rescue, wildlife rescues, rehabilitations, conflict resolution. If tigers are captured for fitting of radio collars, they should be routinely uh, sampled um, and those samples tested to to assess what's, what's going on with the health of that population.
0: A big thank you to our final guest, Martin Gilbert from Cornell University there for giving us the lowdown on canine distemper virus and its direct impact on wild tigers and other carnivores. After listening to all our guests, it's clear that whether it be our food, our pets, or our livestock, we are at the epicentre of emerging diseases. So I ask my guests one final question. What can we all do to help reduce the pressures on tigers and their habitats?
1: I mean, there's the obvious one that you could donate to a conservation charity because those yeah. funds really do make a big difference. And that would help a lot of the site based measures like the, the range of patrols or uh, vaccinating livestock. So you can boost the immune systems of the livestock that are at the forest edge. So they're less likely to get infected because they don't have the weakened immune system. I mean, stuff like that makes a difference. Um, you know, again, we've got we've, we've got to somehow stop stop these deforestation rates from going up and so looking at the products that you do buy in the supermarkets okay that's a just a like, generic response but it is an important one yeah and important. it does make a difference um who you vote for as well i mean i think with the with the government that we have the uk government anyway they certainly put a lot of these financial pledges for protecting rainforests and biodiversity so you know making sure that those pledges are followed through on which we believe they will be Um, That's all uh, important uh, for this.
2: Yeah, I mean, I often think about this, and some of it is a little bit abstract. You know, it's far removed from you sitting in your house, you know, watching TV or, or whatever else. But they are connected. You know, every time we switch on an electrical appliance, we're using electricity that came from somewhere. That's either affecting the environment through, you know, causing climate change or huge areas of forests are being cut down to build hydroelectric dams. So we need to be considerate about how much electricity we use because that has a direct bearing, especially in tiger range countries, on the habitats that the tigers live in. And I mentioned earlier about power transmission lines. These have to be taken out from the dams. They cut swathes through the forest and they don't allow the trees to grow. And this allows access to poachers um, and other types of problems. So, yeah, electric is a big source, a big problem source. Um, What else could we do? I mean, be considerate in what you buy and whatever. Obviously, you know, I think most people listening wouldn't buy anything to do with tiger parts, but they might not consider about. Items that are indirectly connected to tigers, you know, prey items or or even wooden items that come from, you know, unsustainable forests, you know, illegal logging is huge. You know, it's sometimes things are even hidden under, you know, legal certification. Buyer beware, really look into what you're buying and where does it come from and is it really legal? You know, ask questions. I think that's really important um Also I think you know as people go around the world you know visit tiger parks you know every time someone goes into a tiger reserve it's money that comes not just to the park but into the local community those people get a benefit from either being guides or owning hotels or owning local shops or being employed by those businesses and so they directly benefit from your tiger tourism. Um, so I, I really think that's very very important you know to to put money back into the community. So they benefit from having these dangerous wild animals on their doorstep. Um, I think that's very, very important.
3: I, I think going back to to um, the point that what makes tigers vulnerable to canine distemper virus is, is their the, the, the sizes of their individual pop- populations and the degree of fragmentation uh, of populations. So anything that we can do to maintain large areas of of habitat for for tigers avoiding anything that contributes to the um uh, the the destruction of habitat in places like indonesia you know where tiger populations are increasingly becoming fragmented through sort of demand internationally for products that like as you say palm oil or rubber that um are areas of, of forest being cleared to um that are now being denied to tigers or preventing tigers moving through those areas. So I think those are probably the most obvious ways.
0: And there we have it. That's the end of our first episode. A massive thank you to all of our guests today, including Matt Linky from WCS, Tim Redford from Freeland Foundation and Martin Gilbert from Cornell University. They have helped us dig into how infectious diseases are impacting global tiger populations and how the interconnection between people, animals, plants and their shared environment has an impact on the health outcomes for all involved. Look out for our second episode airing next month where I'll be joined by some more special guests. And please do subscribe so you don't miss a single episode and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.